This month brings spring, Women's History Month, state budget negotiation, St. Patrick's Day celebration, and the final chance to vote on your favorite businesses, people, and things in the Times Union's annual Best Of contest. Don't forget to do that ASAP. Go to timesunion.com slash best of. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. And introduce you guys to Antonio Brown, the new part owner of the Albany Empire. Well, I just want to be here, you know, hands on, you know, help the players, you know, be successful on and off the field. We'll get the latest on the investigation into the death of Samantha Humphrey, whose body was pulled from the Mohawk River last week after three months of searching. They haven't released any other information, you know, about whether this is a homicide or if they have any persons of interest or, you know, what they suspect may have happened to her. We'll talk to Mary Lyle, whose daughter Suzanne went missing from the University at Albany campus 25 years ago this week. Yeah, March 1st, 25 years ago, when I, Susie called me on the telephone to wish me happy birthday. That was the last time I spoke with her. And then the next day, she went missing. And we'll hear more from our ongoing Times Union podcast about the disappearance of Jalik Rainwalker. I mean, hopefully we can see um, if there's any anything in the ground that might um, signify Jalik. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's discuss now what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, here are we once again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We're going to go over the top headlines this week. Now, one of the biggest stories uh, was the Schenectady police confirming the body that was found in the Mohawk River was 14-year-old Samantha Humphrey. She'd been missing since November. We are going to hear more about that later in the podcast, so we're going to skip that for the moment. And we'll start with the fact that union leaders were warning this week that New York State is likely to face what they are calling a mass exodus of workers if it doesn't shape up and get its act together. The state is one of the region's largest employees. So what's the story there? Yes, as you note, here in the capital region, our state workers are not only a subject of great interest, but also a big part of our readership. If if you're not a state worker, you are married to one, you're parent or child is a state worker. The Uh, child of one. Yes, I can identify with that. There you go. Exactly. And uh, yeah, this is it's budget season. And so this is the leaders of public uh, sector unions, including most prominently Wayne Spence of the Public Employees Federation, which I believe is still second only in terms of membership to CSEA among the state workforce. 
you know, really joining other union leaders to ring the bell and noting that the state's uh, retention efforts to hold on to workers um, do not go far enough. Kathy Hochul has um, proposed uh, more than 18 million in uh, programs that would address the worker shortage. As these union leaders have said over the course of the next five years, roughly a quarter of the state workforce will be up for retirement, eligible for retirement. You know, replacing those uh, employees, those experts in their field in many cases, is going to be a big challenge. Um, They say that over the course of the Cuomo administration, um, there were steady cuts to the state workforce, um, that it was allowed to become a bit uh, lackluster um, in terms of its hiring and efforts to recruit the best. And they say with the competition for good help with other municipalities and other states, this is about to become a real crisis. Now, this must all be put in the context of the fact that it is budget season. And during budget season, there are no union leaders or advocates who say, we are perfectly happy with the funding we are getting. We don't need any more. So, but there you go. Yeah, something that we see year after year. Stick by the state section on timesunion.com for more news there and other news from our Capitol Bureau. Let's move on to uh, a column that Chris Churchill wrote this week. He raised his eyebrows in a piece that he wrote about two controversial cases, I guess, of University at Albany employees that were handled in very different ways by the institution. What's going on there? Yeah. um, In particular, this comes as a result of the the controversy over the school's handling of David Carpenter, who's the director of the Institute for Health and the Environment at UAlbany, a prominent figure and advocate on the dangers of toxic substances and um, contamination. He has been uh, an expert witness in cases targeting uh, the former Monsanto Corporation, the chemical giant. In one case that is upcoming, the law firm that represents the former owners of Monsanto that are the defendants in the trial asked about how David Carpenter is recompensed and what he does with the compensation that he earns from being an expert witness. Apparently, this inquiry prompted Dr. Carpenter to be placed on what's called alternate assignment. In other words, he was told, don't come on campus, you know, do your work remotely. This went on for several months as this apparent disciplinary inquiry was was taking place. Now, after Brendan Lyons reported on this over the course of the past few weeks, it looks like it has been resolved. Dr. Carpenter has been told he can come back to campus, he can interact with his research students, and he can continue to be an expert witness in these civil cases. And the court in one of these cases that that the law firm attempted to, to basically hit the pause button on the litigation so they could learn more about this disciplinary inquiry was told by the judge, nope, we're moving forward. So there's that on one side. And then there is the case of uh, Coach Dwayne Killings of the UAlbany men's basketball team, who, as we have discussed at great length, that near the end of 2021, was involved in an incident in which there was uh, inappropriate physical contact, as the, uh, the school has rather euphemistically described it. Coach Killings got a chunky fine and was uh, benched for five games, though the school 
scheduled those five games to do sort of the least damage, I would say, to the uh, 2021-2022 season. And uh, Chris just noted that it it seems like the school is uh, kind of bending over backwards to lighten the sanction against Coach Killings, who, as we have discussed, is now facing a misdemeanor assault charge stemming from the same episode, a locker room episode, where according to the uh, criminal complaint, he uh, threw a player up against a locker and slapped him across the face. And Dr. Carpenter, who, you know, was essentially kicked off campus for uh, an extended period of time. All right. More on that at timesunion.com. Sticking with a sports theme, though, um, a very loose segue, if I I may say so. Um, Antonio Brown, the former NFL player, has been given a leadership role or has joined the leadership team of the Albany Empire Arena Football Organization. What's going on there? Yeah. I mean, the wide receiver who's got a Super Bowl ring for his his play with uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, is really kind of, even as we speak here on Thursday morning, going to be announced as a member of the ownership of uh, the Albany Empire, which is, of course, our Arena League team. His father, Eddie Brown, uh, is a beloved former player with uh, the Albany Firebirds. Touchdown, Eddie Brown, right? Exactly right. I was there on, I think it was the first game the uh, Empire ever played And if memory serves, I think he stepped out of a limo actually (laughs) on the field. It was pretty cool. And to a resounding uh, reception, Eddie Brown. So Antonio Brown is, I think it's fair to say, a far more controversial figure than his father ever was. Um, You know, lots of calls to the police, lots of questionable, I think might be understating it, Um, the social media posts, that type of thing. Well, I just want to be here, you know, hands on, you know, help the players, you know, be successful on and off the field and uh, just be an advocate here in the community to bring it out. If that's going out in the community, uh, inviting getting people to the game, getting kids to camaraderie, uh, events in the stadium. So whatever it takes to, uh, to help us be uh, our best selves and host a trophy. And there you go. So this last story required me to brush up a little bit on my War of 1812 history, which admittedly is not very strong. But let's talk about the search for a soldier in that war uh, in Rensselaer County who was executed a long time ago. Um, but now we're looking for him. What, what is the story there? Yeah, this takes us back to the days of the Greenbush Cantonment that both of us have been building our vocabulary this morning. Cantonment is, of course, a, a, a fort or a military outpost. And across the river in uh, what is now Rensselaer County, a private named uh, Samuel Helms went AWOL, returned to the fort, and was tried for desertion and executed. And <laughs> there is great suspicion that he can be found somewhere around Red Mill Elementary School, uh, which is where, you know, this former base was during the War of 1812. They think uh, the athletic fields are where um, there are promising leads to be found. And they're going to use sort of ground detection radar to see if they can find his remains. So uh, that, of course, would be 
great historical news for local military buffs and probably bad news for anybody who uses those playing fields, at least uh, at least for a little bit. At least temporarily. All right. Check out that story on timesunion.com. All right, Casey, thank you so much. We will check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com or any of our social channels. Before we continue, I want to give a note about the rest of this episode. The next three segments all feature a topic that may be disturbing to some listeners. We'll be talking about the cases of three missing children, all of which came up in the news this week. Their stories are tragic, and in some cases, outright disturbing. So please listen on with care. Let's start with the first one, which is news that we alluded to earlier in this podcast. Schenectady police confirmed this week that the body they pulled from the Mohawk River at the end of February was indeed that of missing 14-year-old Samantha Humphrey. She disappeared from a park along that river late one night at the end of November. Times Union reporter Paul Nelson has been following the investigation into the girl's disappearance, and I checked with him to get the latest. Yeah, so the latest is that uh, on a Wednesday of uh, last week that the uh, police responded to uh, Riverside Park uh, in the stockade in Schenectady. Uh, there was somebody who was fishing uh, on the shore and uh, they saw what they believed to be a body. And then uh, the city police, along with the state police, in mass uh, responded and they were able to recover a body, you know, from the Mohawk River in the stockade neighborhood. Afterwards, the police chief, uh, Schenectady police chief, Eric Clifford, uh, met with the media. It was a real brief meeting, and uh, he didn't provide a whole lot of details. He did obviously confirm that they did uh, pull a body from the Mohawk River, but he wouldn't be any more specific, wouldn't talk about, you know, even the gender of, uh, you know, the individual that was pulled uh, from the river. But then on Monday afternoon, they did confirm that it was indeed uh, the body of uh, Samantha Humphrey, the 14-year-old uh, Schenectady High School teenager who had been missing since around uh, Thanksgiving of last year. But everybody at that point when the body was discovered and it was confirmed that there was a body discovered, everybody was convinced that it was her, right? But the police... No question about it. No question about it because it was in the area where she was last seen. Uh, you know, she was picked up on you know, surveillance going back to, like I said, around uh, Thanksgiving. I think it might have been midnight on November the 25th. Uh, she was picked up sort of on the edge of the Mohawk River in Riverside Park uh, in the Stockade neighborhood. But there was no video footage of her actually leaving the park. She had went to the park again just to, you know, recap some of the events. She had went to the park to meet up with an ex-boyfriend who was also 14 years old. And then sort of vanished after that. And then it was a pretty exhaustive search of the Mohawk River, uh, you know, in Schenectady and Colony and Miskiuna, because at certain times there were, you know, individuals who thought that they spotted a body. So obviously police responded. 
you know, just to see if it was indeed uh, a body. But again, nothing turned up in any of those. So it was a pretty exhaustive search that include, you know, the state police, of course, the Schenectady City Police, I believe even uh, the State uh, Department of Environmental Conservation, uh, they had drones in the air. So it was, a, it was a search that was conducted and weather permitting, they were out there just looking to see if they could, uh, you know, find her. If she, indeed, she was in the river and you know, it was a sad ending when, you know, they were able to confirm that it was her body. Absolutely. Very, very tragic. Now, I know they haven't said much, but like what what have they said about maybe what happened to her or what, how the investigation's going with regard to figuring out what the heck happened? There's a lot of questions because they have been extremely tight-lipped, you know, beyond the news release that they put out on Monday afternoon confirming that the remains were uh, you know, Samantha's, they haven't released any other information, you know, about whether this is a homicide or if they have any persons of interest or, you know, what they suspect may have happened to her. So at this point, very few details as, re- you know, in regards to any of the, you know, specific information related to whether they're conducting a homicide probe at this point. Now, I understand that they are, there is a memorial service um, that is happening. At, what has the family said publicly? I have not been able to speak to the family. I know that they did issue uh, a statement. You know, I reached out to a woman, I guess, who was sort of acting as a spokesperson for the family. At, at that time, you know, I was told that uh, they you know, were told by the police not to make any comments uh, relative to the case. So at this point, you know, the family, like I said, they did put out uh, a statement to one of the TV stations. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just such a, a sad ending, you know, uh, to this case. You know, there's a lot of speculation as to, to what may have happened. And, you know, people obviously were holding out hope. And I'm sure some people were resigned that, you know, it might end up, uh, you know, tragically, uh, which it did. But it, it just sets a sad case all around, you know, for the family. Yeah. One question about kind of the process of reporting this story, because last week when police confirmed that there was a body, right, um, then one of the local news stations reported that it was her, although the police would not confirm that. So how did you go about kind of navigating those waters and, and kind of making sure that we got the story right from an official perspective and how difficult that could be? Yeah, I, You know, it's just a matter of, because like I said, there was a lot of speculation and, you know, the family was also putting stuff out on social media. So it just boils down to where you need to try to separate fact from fiction. You want to be very sensitive in a situation like this. I mean, because sometimes, you know, when it comes to the media, you know, you want to get to school, you know, you want to be out front on the story. And, you know, there was a lot of speculation. And even to this day, there's been stuff out there that's been reported that uh, I've been able to confirm. So I just refuse to, you know, put it out into the public sphere. Because like I said, it's a tragic case to be, you know, to begin with. And then you don't want to just make it even worse by just, you know, putting stuff out there. And I understand that the the family, they're making some comments and, you know, but I want to be able to get that, you know, from the police and make sure that's 110% accurate. So again, it's just a matter of just doing your due diligence and, and just making sure that before you publish anything, before you know, I, I write it down, that I make sure that you know, I've asked the right people, that I've you know, checked and, and double-checked just to you know, make sure that it is accurate. Well, you are a 
good reporter, a stellar model reporter. That's what everybody <laughs> should be doing. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes. Yeah, Marie, again, I mean, unfortunately, you know, these tragedies happen. I'd like them not to happen. And, uh, and my heart certainly goes out to that family. Absolutely. And you'll be following it. I'm sure there'll be more developments in the coming weeks and months. Yes. The second missing persons case we are talking about today is one of the region's most famous. The disappearance of Suzanne Lyle. On the evening of March 2, 1998, the 19-year-old student took the bus back to the university at Albany. She was fresh off a shift at her job at a computer store at Crossgates Mall. An eyewitness said they saw her get off the bus on the campus, but that was the last anyone saw or heard from her. That was 25 years ago this week. In the years since, her mother, Mary Lyle, has become a fierce advocate for families with missing persons. She and her husband, Doug, created the Ballston Spa-based Center for Hope in 2001, and she still runs it today. Their efforts resulted in changes to two federal laws. One raised the age of missing youth from 18 to 21. That was Suzanne's law in 1999. And the other requires colleges and universities to have a plan in place to handle missing persons cases. That was the Suzanne Lyle Campus Safety Act of 2008. President George W. Bush signed both laws. Times Union reporter Rose Schneider recently had a chance to sit down with Mary Lyle. She's publishing a book of the poems her daughter Suzanne wrote as a teenager before she disappeared. It's called An Unfinished Life an aspiring poet. Here's a portion of their conversation about the book and about Suzanne's life. It always, it seemed like just from reading about her, Susie was pretty, I don't know, industrious. She made little bunnies. I have a whole basket full of them if you want to see them. She also liked to, I know how people used to do sequins on everything. They glued them on, Susie hand sewed them on everything. But then she also, in high school, made these bunnies that she would sell. At the time, she was selling them for five bucks a piece. She had more money than most kids ever thought of having. But these are all handmade. And I never had one, but people were bringing them back to me after she disappeared and giving them back to me. She just liked to do this stuff, and this was kind of her way of, of you know, dealing with everyday life, you know? She started out with her computers long before people even knew what computers were. I mean, there were no personal computers in homes. Susie had one, but it was like an old Commodore, uh-huh. and it didn't do what she wanted it to do, so she took it all apart and rebuilt it. This is really quite a talented person, you know. It's like, like I said, for the loss. So we kept Susie's name out there for 25 years. You can go on Wikipedia. Suzanne's name's in Wikipedia. It, I mean, you can look, just type her name into the computer and you'll find everything you ever wanted to know about her. Uh, and this is one of the things I tell families when they call. You really need to 
keep talking to the media. You need to keep talking to your uh, investigators. You can't let them put your case in the drawer. You just can't. Every time I'm on television, every time I do an interview, I'm hoping that who knows something about Susie will call the police and tell them, look, I have a, a, some information. As long as you keep my name out of it, I'll give you that information. I think that's what people are. They're afraid of. They're afraid. Have you heard anything from police in recent years about uh, any Actually, things? I met with them just before Christmas the last time, and I need, need to meet with them again. Over 25 years, I've probably had 15 different investigators. Everybody, they retire early, 60. Mm -hmm. They get a nice pension. They're paying for their pension. But um, for them, it's a job. It's like anybody else's job. You come to work. Yeah, okay, we got another missing persons case. We'll work on it, and when all the leads dry up, it goes in the drawer, basically. And like I said, in order to keep your case open, you have to keep doing things. You have to go down and see them. And I tell people, you need to do that. Go and visit with them. Bring a picture, an 8 by 10 picture of the person you're talking about, and have it sit right next to your, on the desk. This way you keep the police interested. They can't take that picture and turn it over because it's sitting there in a picture frame. I try to reach into their, you know, their psyche and make them feel like, hey, this could be my kid, you know. Did you ever think you would get this involved with, like, this kind no. of advocacy work? No, and like I said, when something like this happens, we just kept it going. We had to keep it going. And then we got into, you know, helping other people and felt very good about that. We passed two federal laws. Yeah, March 1st, 25 years ago, when I, Susie called me on the telephone to wish me happy birthday. That was the last time I spoke with her. And then the next day she went missing. I don't know. I keep thinking, is it ever going to... We ever gonna find her? I don't know. Yeah, everything was written on scraps of paper. Oh. Um, sometimes when she didn't have a scrap of paper, she would write it on the back of a napkin. She disappeared when she was 19 in 1998. So she was probably 16 when she wrote this. To comfortably interact, to peacefully coexist. What more could I want? The reason to say it wasn't my fault, to know it is to have been through, and I can say with honesty that I've never been there and it wasn't my fault. My sorrow never ending or seemingly so. I walked on never giving notice to the flowers that had grown off those roots until now. Very deep thoughts. This this one I think is on the computer. I think it's on online if you go in and Look for Suzanne Lyle's poem. She'll see it. So it's called Escape. She wrote it in 1994, so she was four years younger. So she was 15 when she wrote it. A lot of these poems go back. I mean, it says she wonders why her life had turned out like this since the day she first said I do with a kiss. She knows things will never get better despite what anyone thinks. Late every night, he comes home and he goes to the kitchen and drinks. Often he beats her. 
He speaks to her with scorn. He killed their first child on the day he was born. He has had her locked in the house for dozens of years. He washes away their uh, prosperity as he gulps down his beers. She feels that life is no longer worth all of the suffering that she's gone through. And now it seems as though there is only one thing to, left to do. So as she finally escapes to the place of her birth, she pulls out a gun and becomes one with the earth. Wow. How deep is that? At 15, she's writing stuff like this. And my husband and I said, what the heck are you thinking? And she said, yeah, I have to write poems like that. And my favorite one is called Lost Memories. She'll need these pictures no longer. Now that her need for the memories to grow stronger, where will this person's cherished memories go? Perhaps in the trash, the picture someone may throw. Most of the pictures were for her youth, the window in her mouth when she lost her first tooth, a beautiful bride on her wedding day, and the last she saw her home as she was moving away. And now it's really sad to say that these memories that meant so much to her are being thrown away to be seen never again, along with her soul, which is being lowered into her burial hole. Can you believe this stuff my daughter wrote? I'll tell you, going through this all winter was really difficult for me. Yeah. It's like it all ended yeah. that day. You know, the last time we saw her, two weeks before. Last time I talked to her, 25 years ago today. That was it. Well, I hate to end on that note. I mean, is there anything else that you think is important for people to know? She was really a great person who had all sorts of, in, in some of her poems, her aspirations. I mean, she actually told who she was. She They, they didn't always rhyme. Um, there was one uh, which I always liked, and we use it at Missing Persons Day. And Doug and I could never say it right away because we felt, she wrote it in 1996, and it was a quote, and it says, Crisis acts as a catalyst for change. The times when things are going badly are the times when I find change to be most necessary like sand that irritates the oyster, yet yields something beautiful. I have felt the irritation of learning life's lessons, and uh, through my healing, I have found beauty and knowledge. Like, we couldn't read that for a long time, but we would have it at Missing Persons Day, because that's what happens with people. Christ, is this a premonition? 1996, three years before she disappeared? Two years before she disappeared? I don't know. After the break, we'll hear a segment from the final episode of our sister podcast, Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. This podcast is supported by The Times Union, a newspaper of distinction winner by the Journalism Association of New York. Subscribe today to the Capital Region's award-winning news source at timesunion.com slash subscribe.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's get on to the third missing persons case that we're covering in this episode. For the last six weeks on this podcast, The Eagle, we've been hearing snippets of our sister podcast, Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. This podcast, which I produced alongside reporter Wendy Libertor, explores the mysterious disappearance of 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker. He vanished in 2007 from the Washington County village of Greenwich. His case was ruled a probable homicide, but no suspects were ever named, and no body was ever found. The seventh and final episode, for now, dropped this week. In it, Wendy and I go on a search for Jalik's remains. Have a listen. Just, if you see anything, don't touch it. (laughs) Just stop and call me over, okay? Forensic anthropologist Mercedes Fabian is standing at the mouth of an overgrown trail atop Mount Colfax. We're about 15 minutes due east of Greenwich by car. Like looking for, if, even if it's something you're not sure, if it's a bone, maybe something's on the surface of uh, the ground, or weird changes that you notice, like, oh, this is a random patch of nothing in a whole field of grass. Just call me over. Okay? Cool. All right. Yeah. A random patch of nothing in a whole field of grass, she says? That could be a sign that there's a body buried beneath it. Disturbed vegetation, soil compaction, depressions in the ground, these are all things that investigators typically look for when they're searching for a body. It's a beautiful upstate New York fall day. (laughs) Absolutely gorgeous. Wendy Libertor and I are about to join Mercedes on a search for Jalik Rainwalker's body. We're tagging along with a group of students from the College of St. Rose Cold Case Analysis Center. You have those good pictures. Those satellite pictures aren't good. Yes. Oh, you don't have them? No, I do, I do. So, okay. The Cold Case Analysis Center looks at unsolved cases from around New York's capital region, like Jalik's. The students dissect the cases. They look for new or unexplored angles and information. Their goal is to provide useful leads to law enforcement to help them solve the case. Yeah, like this is the terrain map. Like how, that yeah. didn't really help me a lot, but yeah. okay. it does show us. Olivia Vallant and Zephaniah Cooper are criminal justice majors. They've been studying Jalik's case. They're both excited and alert going into this search. Well, what are you hoping to get out of today? Um, I mean, hopefully, we can see um, if there's any anything in the ground that might um, signify Jalik. But yeah, um, really, if there's any type of sign that <laughs> Jalik was here, or you know his remains or anything like that, I mean that would really be like the gold mine of this. But I don't know. We'll really just have to see. Right. You know, okay. but if we do find anything, we're gonna flag it and get the GPS, and then we'll hand it over to the authorities to deem what they want to do from that. So so are we going up this way? or it's this gate here. That's the Cold Case Analysis Center program director and criminology professor Christina Lane. Now, why here? Maybe you could explain, uh, too, why Colfax Mountain is important in the case. Well, the uh, neighbor back then uh, that shares the boundary line 
uh -huh. with the individual that owns the property that we're looking at. And he contended there was a lot of odd digging activity and burying activity late at night that the property owner did. And he also... Christina says the land's former owner was an acquaintance of Jalik's adoptive father, Stephen Kerr, who was the last person to see Jalik before he vanished. The landowner has never been suspected of foul play or charged in connection with Jalik's disappearance. The only person of interest police have named in the case in the last 15 years is Stephen Kerr. But that designation holds no legal weight. Stephen Kerr has never been charged with anything. Colfax Mountain it's actually Mount Colfax, but everyone we talk to seems to use the names interchangeably. It's not been officially searched by the state police as part of the investigation into Jalik's disappearance. Retired state police investigator Tom Aiken confirmed to us that Colfax had never been searched. Based on the evidence they'd compiled, he says state police did not believe it was high on the list of places Jalik's body could likely be. Cambridge Greenwich Police Sergeant Robert Danko, though, has actually checked out the area. He says he did so at the prompting of several concerned citizens who were worried that the witnessing of late-night digging with heavy machinery in a heavily wooded area around the time Jalik disappeared could mean something. Yeah, I actually walked Colfax uh, for on my own just because I heard that rumor as well, and I went up and went, went and walked around. That area would be hard, but, you know, obviously I was by myself just doing like a, you know, woods? it's woods, it's uh, gravel bank, you know, like gravel beds and stuff like that. And just, you know, some junk up there. But I don't know if that area is on, on the radar just yet. I know talking to, you know, the lead investigators with the state police that, you know, there were some areas of interest. And but at the time when I was talking to him about it, it was on the back burner because of COVID. So. Colfax Mountain, or Mount Colfax, is almost 1,300 feet high. From 1951 through 1970, the State Department of Environmental Conservation used it as a fire lookout. There's an abandoned fire tower still standing at the top. It's not open to the public. The area we were there to search, however, is across the road from the path to the fire tower. It's now owned by Coldwell Banker Properties. Christina and her students secured permission to be there. Yeah, I don't know. It looks like it, it could be a possibility. Yeah. You know, I mean, why not? I just can't get over the fact that it would have been 15 years, you know? like. Right. And you could still find signs, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. You can listen and subscribe to the whole seven-episode Rainwalker The Lost Boy series wherever you get your podcasts. And check out timesunion.com for more photos, timelines, and other extras. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back again next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. And as always, head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. 
Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Paul Nelson, Rose Schneider, and Abigail Rubel for their contributions to this episode. 